0: Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast, now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. The US has maintained a policy of engagement with the People's Republic of China since Richard Nixon normalized relations with Mao Zedong in 1972. But what does engagement actually mean in Washington and Beijing? And has engagement changed under the new Trump administration? I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, And for today's podcast, I'm joined by Orville Schell, a scholar, journalist, and currently Arthur Ross, director of the Center on US-China Relations at the Asia Society in New York. So your presentation here at the Fairbank Center today asks how we should assess the policy of engagement. So perhaps you could start by telling us what engagement means in the context of US-China relations.
1: I think the interesting fact about the, the notion of engagement, which is a bit of a mantra, uh, in America, and I think also to some degree in in Europe, is that it, it comes freighted with an enormous amount of sort of w- hidden Western presumptions about the direction of history, the in- inevitability of the way teleology moves. In other words, where we are sort of ineluctably going towards more openness, towards more democracy, more marketization, et cetera. And I think uh, if you ask Chinese, as I recently have, First of all, what what is the term in Chinese? I mean, you you could say engagement, je or something, but there isn't a world view of engagement that slowly, as we have in in, in the United States, that as we engage China, it will become more and more similar. It will our pathways will converge rather than diverge? That is not how China sees it. In fact, I think, if anything, they see the notion of engagement when it's articulated as somewhat insidious, as peaceful evolution that's out to sort of undermine and actually sort of bring down the political system and the system of values, however you may choose to describe that, that, that exists.
0: So we might be in a situation where both America and China are using similar words even, but have completely different understanding of what that word means.
1: I mean, I think China's policy toward the U.S. and towards the West has been quite consistent since the late Qing Dynasty. Quite utilitarian, you know. You borrow what you need. Xi shi wei yong, zhong wei ti. You know, they use Western things for practical use, Eastern things for for essential sort of matters, so that you borrow engineering, science, etc. But you don't meddle with your fundamental system, whereas the United States, I think, has a very different view, that just generally speaking, everybody is and should be headed toward a more open, more democratic, more humane, just, equal type of a social contract and form of governance. And I I don't disagree with that, but I think it is a bit naive, and there is a real collision of worldviews here.
0: So the sort of elephant in the room in US-China relations is this new administration, Um, who seem to be a combination of stirring things up and a complete unknown uh, for many people who study the US-China relationship. Um, So, for example, the State Department hasn't updated their website, and we still have... I think the last thing they wrote was in December 2016 saying we are all about engagement, and obviously some things have changed Mm -hmm. since the election. You yourself uh, are currently chairing a bipartisan task force with other China specialists to try and advise the Trump administration... And as part of this task force, you've highlighted six critical areas that could be used for US-China engagement. Um, Perhaps you could tell our listeners why you chose those ones specifically.
1: Well, in setting up this task force, we, which is sort of twenty uh, prominent China people, we sort of recognized, obviously, with the new with the election last November, that there was a, a an inflection point, uh, and we began to write merrily away. And then, of course, Trump got elected, and it threw everything into complete uh, into complete turmoil, uh, because the issue really uh, became as much the lack of constancy on the American side is on the Chinese side. So suddenly we had an in- equation where both sides of the equation were uh, you know, were unknowns. And in fact, I think you could even say now the American side is more of an unknown. So it, it makes, I think, the general task of analyzing China and being critical of China, or at least being critical of the relationship, much more fraught and difficult because you have both sides in a state of uncertainty. And perhaps the American side trumps Trump in terms of uncertainty factors.
0: Within this task force, some of it reads as very much that the U.S. should respect some of China's demands more uh, in order to try and get on better with Beijing. For an example, uh, adhering to the One China policy, how do you respond to critics who might say that your task force is pro-China?
1: Well, I think um, adhering to the One China policy is sort of basic sort of DNA of the relationship at this point. And when Trump meddled with it, I mean, the whole train threatened to run off the rails. Now, do I believe that Taiwan should never have the right of self-determination as an abstract matter? No. I think, you know, if Quebec can secede, Scotland can vote out of the UK, Czech Republic can break in half, why not Taiwan and China? However, the realities are otherwise. So if you're trying to devise a workable policy rather than an idealistic one, I think you have to acknowledge that the one China policy is pretty much baseline. And this question of engagement, uh, of course, has shifted under our feet in the last few years. What does it mean? We don't really know now. But if we're going to have any kind of interaction, which we absolutely must have because of simple facts like nuclear proliferation, North Korea, climate change, you know, pandemics, things of that nature, then we have to find some way to engage.
0: When Trump was first elected and he called uh, Taiwanese president Tsai Ing-wen, it was seen by many as a sort of break with norms of dealing with Beijing. We even did a podcast about it with Stephen Goldstein. But it seems like since that phone call, we haven't heard very much about Taiwan at all from the Trump administration. Is that because we haven't heard much about foreign policy in general? Or is that because Trump is starting to be more constrained by the norms of international relations?
1: Well, I think certainly it's fair to say that Trump is being somewhat constrained by his brace of generals who operate within certain uh, more, more uh, you know, uh, clear frameworks. But I think actually it's a mistake to try to make sense out of Trump, because I, I think in a certain sense he's the ultimate utilitarian. He will, like Steve Bannon in Hong Kong, he'll speak out of both sides of every issue, which actually gives him an amazing amount of flexibility. He can either turn she into an enemy or he can be his best friend, you know.
0: He can be both best friend and worst enemy at the same time.
1: Or alternately or whatever. So in other words, he, he leaves all options open. Now, that does not bespeak of a, of, a, of a very highly evolved notion of principle. But of course, this isn't uh, President Trump's strong suit.
0: Before the election, a lot of people assumed that China would prefer a President Trump uh, versus a Hillary Clinton, who would probably highlight the differences between China and America more strongly. As Trump's presidency has progressed, how do we determine what Beijing's opinion is of the Trump administration? Because that's one of the biggest problems Mm -hmm. with any authoritarian regime is this Mm -hmm. opacity.
1: I mean, I think Beijing is having some difficulty too, making sense out of Trump. And I think they've actually done a fairly good job at keeping relatively cool and not uh, committing themselves by responding in an emotional way to any one of his many very contradictory statements. And I think, actually, when Trump goes there in November, I think there's there's a, a chance that if she plays his cards well, he will get pretty much what he wants, a new kind of big power relationship. He could get the South China Sea. He could get us to lay off of Taiwan. He could get us to kind of cool it on trade if he can make a deal with Trump on North Korea or at least the semblance of the deal, so that Trump can come home and say, well, I bagged the deal of deals to solve the North Korea problem. China, as I always said, is on board. She's a good guy. And I think you see Steve Bannon in Hong Kong yesterday starting to set up that possibility by extolling she Xi and she's relationship to, to, to Trump. So I think that sort of very utilitarian sort of opportunistic view may be what we see of, of Trump. and it may have some virtues actually in being able to do something that principle w- was, would always obstruct in someone like Hillary or Obama. But one other short quick thought. I mean I do think the Chinese missed an incredible opportunity with Obama and with Hillary Clinton and John Kerry, because they actually did want to make a deal. And if China could have jumped over their own shadow and out of their own paranoia and their own uncertainties about whether they were being undermined or what was going on, I think they could have really kind of quieted things down in Asia and enable them to, to have a more friendly and commodious relationship with the U.S. and get on with the task of, of the very severe problems that they confront
0: at home. A couple of years ago, one of the ideas was that China and America could cooperate on the environment. So Mary Sims Gallagher at Tufts University does a lot of research on this. The environment is somewhat off the table now under the Trump administration but does north korea provide an alternative venue for that cooperation to exist
1: i think north korea does provide a very tantalizing way for the us and china under trump to come together because it's sort of you know big leader to big leader it's sort of like you know tony soprano you know dividing up the territory that you know the waste management gang gets new jersey the another gang gets brooklyn you know you kind of work that out so i mean i think that's all quite possible but I, I still think that these things can be tremendously volatile because they aren't based on any kind of calculated plan or set of assumptions that guide the country. It's, it's pretty opportunistic.
0: And I'm going to pick you up on that word assumption in particular, because obviously you've been studying China for many years. What is a key assumption about studying China that you've seen change over the decades?
1: particularly since Kissinger and Nixon went in 1972, and then Deng Xiaoping came to this country in 1979, I think we began to incubate this notion that with more exchange, more educational interaction, more ballet companies, more trade, more market, you know, the whole nine yards, that we were on pathways that were, you know, potentially convergent, and we, really felt that was all the more true when the communist bloc fell apart in 1989. And you had Francis Fukuyama and the end of history. So I think that presumption that history is on our side is one that now many people are questioning. And I think that's a tremendously important change. And it begs a whole bunch of reconsiderations all down the line in terms of policy. And And also, I should say, in terms of each of our own deportment, in how we as individuals, whether we're scholars, businessmen, journalists, musicians, whatever, how we interact with China. What do we do and what do we not do?
0: One question I have for you is that you have a very prominent position uh, in the public about China. Why do you think that outreach and public outreach on China is important?
1: I think that we, uh, whatever we may think about China, and I mean, I think there's much to acclaim, and there's much that's very impressive about its progress over the last few decades. But there's also much that's very retrograde. And I think we have very little idea of how to parse that equation and to factor into our own policy and deportment sort of the right mix of being engaged without being foolishly naive about what that means. And where we actually don't engage, where we're very resistant, where we say no, and why we do that. Whether we believe they're universal values or history is going in our direction or not, it is fair that we do have our values and that we express those in our interactions with our friends, with our colleagues, with our business partners and with other countries.
0: So something we saw uh, particularly during the campaign last year in 2016 was a lot of misinformation about China. We had to have Joseph Nye here at Harvard say China is not a currency manipulator and has not been for several years. Why is this part of the election campaign? Do you think that public education on China is going to become more necessary in the future?
1: I think public education on almost any topic you can think of is essential and woefully absent. And the level of ignorance in America is is abysmal. And unfortunately, that happens to be, you know, the the, the most fundamental assumption about democracy is that an enlightened public will make enlightened decisions. So there's a real challenge to the system here. But as to China, uh, I do think, uh, first of all, China is a very contradictory place. So it's very easy to argue sort of any side of any argument because there's evidence inherent within China's own progress of almost anything that you choose to look for. So I think actually what we need to do is sort of return more to our own core principles and our own core interests and examine them with very flinty eyes and not worry so much about whether China's going to change and become more like us and and we're going to merge them into the world's order and et cetera, et cetera. But look at what's in the interest of our country. And secondarily, what is the right thing to do?
0: So for your day job, you are currently at the Asia Society, which very much engages in these issues. Uh, perhaps you could explain to our listeners what the Asia Society does.
1: Well, the Asia Society, where I work uh, as director of the Center in U.S.-China Relations, does sort of all manner of interaction with Asia in the sort of belief that the more exchanges you have, the better we'll get along. I mean, it's, it's a good assumption. So our job is to interact with China. So I think the challenge for any center that deals with China now is how to keep interacting. But how to interact in a way which is as much on our own terms, however we define them, than simply on China's terms. Because there's a tremendous prejudice the minute a Chinese scholar, diplomat, businessman enters the room, uh, the conversation very quickly gets chilled because nobody wants to be impolite, nobody wants to tread on sensitive ground. So I think that makes it very difficult for us to discuss things frankly and honestly. That's a real challenge I think we're all confronting now more than ever when more and more things are sensitive and where China's becoming more and more punitive. So this puts us in a very new territory, one that we've not been in you know, since the 1970s when I first went to China in 75.
0: And I guess this is something we've seen very recently in academia with this uh, attempted censoring of the China Quarterly in China um, and something that the of Society itself has also witnessed in Hong Kong with uh, this confusion and banning around Joshua Wong speaking there. Um, How do you address a situation where the outside world is accusing you of kowtowing to Beijing?
1: Well, I think you try not to kowtow. You try to be judicious, to be uh, decorous, and to be fair, and but to be honest, and uh, to at very least uh, allow and encourage different sides of every argument. It's it's the obligation of any open society, which we last I checked were supposed to be. So I consider that our mandate, even though I recognize and I feel. Myriad pressures coming from China now that it is more influential, has more money to throw around, and it's more punitive than ever. So we have to be ready for that, and we have to have ourselves queued up to respond in a way that isn't either overly emotional, overly um, uh, naive, but that
0: recognizes that they're there, and we have to deal with them. Before we finish up, we have a quick fire round here called the Fairbank Five, now requested by many of our podcast interviewees. So our first question is uh, your favorite Chinese food.
1: I like northern Chinese food. I like Tsung Yobing, uh, those sort of oil cakes, fried cakes made out of wheat flour. Early on in my life, uh, I was uh, studying in Taiwan in the 60s, and there were a lot of old soldiers who'd come over with the Nationalist Army, and they were the pedicab drivers and the restaurateurs in the streets. And I used to eat at one little stand run by a Shandong family and uh, got an affection for Tsung Yobing. Uh,
0: Your favorite place in Greater China?
1: China is a fickle mistress you know the word Gemütlichkeit in German, sort of cozy, warm, uh, welcoming, I can't think of almost not very many places in China can be thus described. So a favorite place uh, is not, we're not talking Provence, we're not talking you know Austria, it's, it's a different kind of a, a, a proposition In many ways, my favorite places of China, the places where there are most contradictions and most enigmas, most questions, and most perhaps even sometimes turmoil.
0: Favorite Chinese saying?
1: I guess one of my favorite ones is (laughs) bia Let's just not talk about it, (laughs) which I think describes the the penchant towards historical amnesia quite um, aptly
0: a book that you have read recently that you would recommend?
1: You know, I, I, I always like reading Simon Lay's, who really stopped writing about China back in, I guess his last book may have been or at least contemporary China, maybe in the 70s. But he was a man who, rather than sort of compromise himself, just fell away from the cloth, retreated into history, and didn't go back. Because there was enough about it, I think, that that offended him on some deeply personal level. And he is somebody who I think nobody could accuse of losing his integrity.
0: And our final question is a class that you have taken or taught on China that changed your thinking about the country in some way.
1: Well, I think, undeniably, it was the class when I was was John Fairbank and Reichauer and Albert Craig. And, you know, I fell into it and I had no idea what I was doing. And I think it met every single day. And I came out the other end and my head was spinning and I didn't know what else to do. So I just kept going. (laughs) That's how a lot of us feel as well about why we study China.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. A pleasure. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast, now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and other podcast providers.